0: So my first apartment, you want to talk about that a little bit? It was a sight for sore eyes, and by that I mean it was an absolute pigsty. I remember when my mom and dad first entered into that apartment, I think my mom was torn between laughing and crying. Uh, She chose to laugh because she raised three boys and she understood what could happen. Now, guys, I just have one thing to say about this picture. You know that a picture is worth a thousand words. This picture is saying no girlfriend. (laughs) So just remember that. We had it all. I had a cot, we had four or five plates. We had some bowls that my roommate had managed to scrounge together, a frying pan to cook with, next to no toiletries, an assortment of sheets and blankets, and I think about $20 worth of groceries in the fridge. It was 300 square feet of glory. And I was free to go wherever the wind blows to do what I want to make my own decisions to really live. For some reason, though, my parents didn't see my situation as positively. And so we all hopped into the car and we made an emergency run to Walmart. I came home with all kinds of goodies, tons of food. We filled up the refrigerator, me and my roommate, in like fashion, devoured it in about two days. A new set of sheets, some deodorant, because, you know, who needs that? I'm just kidding, I wasn't that bad. And I got a mini TV uh, and a DVD player. come alongside of it. We were set. We were established. Now, I wonder if Paul must have felt similar to the concern of my parents when he had left this Thessalonian church. You might recall his concern. It was expressed in the text five times, your faith, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10. He'd only spent three Sabbaths with this church, building it up and instructing it, and here he was, and away from them and things were missing. He wondered if they were sleeping on a cot instead of a bed. He was concerned that they might be trying to get by on marginal spiritual realities instead of the deep abiding truths of God's word. And what could Paul do? He couldn't rush back to Thessalonica and uh, take them over to Walmart for spiritual things and fill their fridge up. No. No. He was unable to make his way to them. But remember, this passage is uh, bookended by that word to establish or strengthen. Paul knew that he needed to do this. So he did it by two ways. The first is that he sent a trusted friend and co-worker in the gospel, Timothy. Remember how we talked about last week that ministry of presence, that eyeball-to-eyeball type of ministry. Paul knew that they would need this, and he sent a faithful, trusted worker, Secondly, Paul did something that was even more vital than sending Timothy. Something that we tend to de-emphasize by statements like, Oh, I wish I could do more for you, but the least I can do is pray. I think it was Thomas Chalmers who said, Prayer does not just enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is the greater work for God. So yes, prayer is this great work. And Paul knew that he needed to come alongside of this church in that effort of prayer so that he could pray that God would firmly establish them in their faith, that he would supply those things that are still missing. And I think you'll see this morning that all of the things that he's praying for them are things that we need too. So if you would, open your Bibles with me. We're in the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can grab the blue Bible in the chair in front of you and turn to page 987, and you'll pick up with us in our text. We're looking at verses 9 through 13. So Paul says this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Of our Lord Jesus with all of the saints. Now, I love this particular section of the scriptures. One of the important things that we can see from this section is how you can pray for others. I think we should take a moment and consider that, especially at a time like this. Paul provides for us a good model on how to pray for people. He first begins by talking about praying gratefully. Notice verse 9. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? You get this sense that Paul, as he is going about life, reoccurringly has thoughts about people. And when those thoughts come to his mind, his heart wells up with gratitude for them. I've often wondered how much less conflict we would have in our life if we prayed thankfully for people got to tell you, it's really hard to say a harsh word to my wife Katie when through the day I'm saying, Thank you, Lord, for providing me with a wife that's way out of my league. <laughs> I think we see another principle on prayer. He prayed earnestly. Look at verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So what is earnest prayer? Well, let's talk about what it is not first. It is not shallow, weak, half-hearted prayer. It has nothing to do with a particular posture that we strike in prayer, whether it's sitting down or standing up or kneeling or lying down on our face. It has nothing to do with the volume of our voice or how eloquent we speak or how many words we use. Let me put it like this if you've ever received a phone call that someone you love very much has cancer, or if you've sat in a hospital waiting room as a grandparent while one of your grandchildren is undergoing life-giving surgery, or if your spouse has been called into the services and is deployed, no one will need to tell you what to do. You will pray earnestly. You might not utter words, but your heart will cry out to God. You will know that he hears you. I've heard a preacher describe his prayer when his wife was in a terrible automobile accident. He was overwhelmed, and the only thing that he could cry out was, Oh God! Oh Jesus! And in retrospect, he said that this was the first time in his life when he felt like he had really ever prayed. Why is it that hard times produce real prayer? Remember, prayer is an admission that we are completely dependent upon God. And it's those hard times that enter into our lives that make us acutely aware of the fact that we're not riding, we're not the one steering the car, are we? God is. And we need him. We see a third principle In verse 10, he prayed consistently. Notice that he talks about the nature of his prayers being night and day. So that expression is not that Paul was praying literally every moment of the day, but reoccurringly or consistently through the day. As people were coming to his mind, he would offer up a prayer to God and he would continue in prayer. And I'm sure that there have been people who have come to your heart reoccurringly through the day that you're praying for consistently. I've even had moments where God wakes me up out of sleep to pray for people. And I'm sure that's happened to some of you as well. Consistent. Fourthly, he prayed specifically. You know, one of the most important things that we can understand about the Christian life, one of the truths that we must never be deceived about is the fact that we are never going to arrive fully in this lifetime. There is still much, much more growth that needs to occur in our lives, and we need the Spirit of God to produce that growth. We need to grow closer to Christ. We need to grow better at discerning the will of God. We need to grow in our love for other people. We need to look more like Jesus. And you'll find as you continue reading that this is the substance of Paul's prayer. He prays four substantive things in this prayer. The first thing that he prays is for a faith without gaps. Look at verse 10. He says, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now that word supply is a rich word. It means to fit together, to join, to repair, to restore, to equip. So here's a couple of different uses that they would use in the New Testament times. It could talk about reconciling political differences. Need that today, don't we? It is a surgical term for setting bones. It describes the repairing of fishing nets. It is used for military or naval preparation. So the idea of Paul using this word is that there are things that are still needed unless these things happen, there will be gaps in your faith. Now, we all have gaps in our faith. Let's just be honest. We don't know God as fully as we should. We have moments where we allow fear to set in or we give way to anxiety. We turn to human answers to solve our problems instead of God's word. Those are gaps, aren't they? Orlando Sayer has said this as he writes about those questions that might cause us to doubt God. He says there are quiet moments when our minds return to those softer but irritatingly persistent noises, the nagging questions and doubts about our Christian faith, the conundrums that never get solved. What do you do with them? If you're like most people, you probably just put them out of your mind, throw them into the too hard pile. Resolve to set aside some time and ponder them next year, right? The one thing you probably don't do is sit down and really think them through. You've tried before, but it wasn't pretty. You found yourself questioning your most basic faith convictions. Better just to get on with life and block your ears. That's your survival technique. But he says it's an understandable response, but it's a lazy one, and it's a dangerous one too. Lazy because God has given us a mind and he expects that mind to fuel our Christian life and growth. And dangerous because if we don't work through our issues deliberately, Bible in hand, we're going to find almost by osmosis that we'll imbibe worldly ways of thinking which will join the dots for us in unbiblical ways. Our thinking will become a patchwork of snippets we've picked up from films and friends and speakers, and the Bible. So yes, there will be some Bible in there, but it will also be commingled with other things. I've observed in this life that the most gaps that I've seen in Christians' faith stems from an improper understanding of the character of God. For example, we've been told that God is loving but we've never delved into the depths of the biblical understanding of what God's love is. And so we attach some sentimental love to God. And then we're completely leveled later when we realize that God's love is much bigger than this little tiny understanding of love that we have inserted in for him. As we move forward in the letter, we're also going to see that there's other certain areas where the Thessalonians are lacking in faith. He'll talk about moral concerns, doctrinal issues. He'll talk about uh, day-to-day situations in their life. Romans 1.17 talks about the, the life of faith as us growing from faith to faith. In other words, the whole of the Christian life, all that we do here and now is built upon the rock of faith. We have a question. You ready? Are you content with where you are? To use a New England expression, are you all set? I hope not. I hope that you want to go deeper in your understanding of who God is. And I pray that you would pray for a heart that burns to know him. Because when you do that, you will see your faith grow and the gaps start to fill in. Notice another thing that Paul prays, verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So let's stop there for a moment. The sense that you get from Paul as you look at this verse is there's this deep, abiding recognition that God's plan is going to move forward. What does God want him to do, right? It's a question many of us ask. Makes me think of Beridan's ass. It's a philosophical conundrum named after the medieval French philosopher. The idea is that if a donkey were standing exactly midway between two equally tasty-looking piles of hay, which will it choose, right? Because it needs a reason to choose one pile of hay over the other. And in this case, there seems to be no reason. So wouldn't the donkey just stand there in its indecision and starve to death? One author writes, Many Christians today behave, if you don't mind my saying, like Beridan's asses. Waiting as they are for God to reveal details of his plan, they simply do nothing. Or, to be more accurate, they decide to keep doing what they are currently doing. They're too afraid of making a mistake that they'll have to live with, or too overwhelmed by the number of choices, or too defined by the baggage of their past, or too worried about missing out on God's plan. So indecision is the order of the day. But that is not the sense that you get from Paul as he prays. He has that, like I said, deep abiding sense that God's plan is going to move forward. And so he prays with confidence knowing that when God gives him directional decisions, it will be best. Now, I want us to think about God's will in two ways this morning. There are two realities that operate at the same time when it comes to God's will. The first is the idea of God's ideal will. God's ideal will is what should be in the world and what will be in the new creation, but it's not necessarily what is Here and now. Let me just say this. We all want God's ideal will to happen. We do. We might not think we do, but trust me, we do. The Bible talks about God's ideal will in all kinds of different places. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Exodus 20.3 You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's God's ideal will. That's what he wants you to do. And let's say this. um, God's ideal will has no question marks attached to it. 100% certain. I know that as I read the Bible, this is what God wants me to do. Now, let's talk about a second understanding of God's will, God's plan will. God's plan will is what He decides is going to happen. So, it includes big things and small things. It includes things both wonderful and terrible, joyful and heartrending, things that bring Jesus honor, and things that do not. So, God's plan will always. Comes to pass. It's the things that God sets out to do. He will never be thwarted. I love how R.C. Sproul says it. I've quoted this to you multiple times. With God, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. I mean, down to the finest detail, God is in control. He never removes his hand from the steering wheel. But here's the deal with God's plan will He doesn't reveal the details of that ahead of time. Those are the things that we need to watch unfold as God reveals them in time. So when we're asking questions about the will of God, we must determine in what sense we're asking the question. Secondly, if you're questioning how does this work, how does God have two wills that are operating at the same time, doesn't it sound like a little bit schizophrenic or something like that? I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Don't we actually have two wills that operate in different sorts of situations? Let's talk about family dinner for a moment. Okay? Let's go there. As a father, in one sense, I have a will to sit down at the table and enjoy a nice, peaceful, quiet evening where everyone's happy And there's no complaining over vegetables. But I know that that probably is not going to happen when me and Katie push forward this steaming plate of broccoli and cauliflower in front of the kids, right? Why? Why would I do that if I will for peace and quiet? Well, because I also will that my kids grow up with strong bones and that they're not like picky and all those types of things. So, Here you see one parent, two wills operating at the same time. And if we don't exercise our will in some kind of flat and simple way, then why would God exercise his will in some kind of flat or simple way? It's a good question, isn't it? Now, that doesn't answer the question, though, how do I know what God wants me to do with my life, right? So I think we need to— Consider a couple of principles, and I'd like to run it through the grid of a question. Who should I marry? Well, I've already got that answered, but for somebody else, right? I think we need to understand a couple of practical details when we're making a decision. First, we need to read the Bible, right? To know what God's ideal will is. So we're making a decision. We want to get married. What does God's word say about marriage? Well, it says a lot, doesn't it? It says that it needs to be between one man and one woman. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? I'm not allowed to have multiple wives. And trust me, I couldn't, I couldn't do that anyway. Um, I also know that I shouldn't marry someone from the same sex because God's will is clear on that matter. We also read elsewhere in the scriptures that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. So Paul says, do not be unequally yoked to a believer. So what do we know right now about marriage? A lot, don't we? A lot. A second principle that we see is that we need to pray in line with God's priorities. So here is the fact that there is an overall direction that God is taking you on as a Christian, all right? God's great cosmic plan for everyone, everywhere, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, is to bring the world underneath the headship of Jesus Christ. That's the direction that everything is heading in. We read next week, or two weeks from now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that God's directing you towards sanctification. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. So that's the overall course or direction that your life is heading. Now, knowing this means the difference between mature prayers and immature prayers. Let's talk about an immature prayer. Um, If we think God's plan is about making us happy, for example... We would pray something along these lines, Dear God, please help me to know whether I should ask out Katie or Lisa so that I will get the perfect girl for me. Okay, been there, prayed that. But (laughs) it was immature at the time. Let's talk about mature. God, please help me to discern which of these girls will grow with me in Christ. Help me to understand which marriage will bring you the most glory. Who's going to come with me to raise our children to love Jesus? Two different prayers asking the same question, right? Who should I marry? But one is decidedly more mature than the other, right? Thirdly, we need to apply biblical wisdom. So wisdom is the skill of living. It's living that always considers God's ways and his purposes. It's practical. We know that many situations require deeper thinking than just whether or not this is right or wrong. For example, going back to marriage, I've seen plenty of marital unions occur that were not sinful, but boy, were they unwise. Everyone could see it. They were incompatible. This person cared about spiritual things to a much deeper degree than this person did. And you almost feel like a prophet because you say, this isn't going to work well. This isn't going to happen right. And it doesn't. When it comes to learning God's wisdom, I think there's two ways to learn it. There's the slow way and there's the fast way. The slow way is just to simply keep on living your life. Go ahead. You know, things are going to happen, you're going to start checking off boxes like, whoa, I shouldn't have done that, that was a big mistake. And over time, after many bumps and bruises, you'll start getting a little bit wiser. The fast way, though, is much less painless. It's to go up to a person who has a few more years under their belt or more life experience and to simply say, what would you recommend in this situation and why? Why? And Proverbs say if you do that with multiple people, you get even wiser. So too many people opt for the slow route. We're asking questions about direction. We don't know what we should do. But God has given us so many resources so we know what we can do. Let's talk about the third thing he prays for, love without limits. Love without limits. Verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So love is that Christian virtue that glues us together. It's that Christian virtue that you can't do by yourself. And as we practice love in the context of community, we grow and grow and grow. That's what happens with love. It's like fertilizer to a plant when a church has love it explodes. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So here in Thessalonians, Paul's praying for an overabundance of love, a bottomless well of love, a love that is limitless. And you can never give too much of love and you can never receive too much of love. When we look at the type of love that Paul describes here, The Nelson Study Bible does a good job of talking about it. It is agape. The word agape describes a love that is based on the deliberate choice of the one who loves rather than the worthiness of the one who is loved. And thank God that God loves in that way. Because if he didn't, we wouldn't be here this morning. This kind of love goes against the natural human inclination. It is a giving, selfless, expect-nothing-in-return kind of love. Our modern throwaway society encourages us to get rid of people in our lives who are difficult to get along with, whether they are friends, family, or acquaintances. Yet this attitude runs in complete contrast to the love that Paul describes. True love puts up with people who would be easier to give up on. Remember who Jesus told us we must love. Your neighbor. That kind of takes love out of the stratosphere and it puts it down to the ground level, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, I love all people because I'm so benevolent, right? I love all people. But then Jesus has to go and make it a little harder. He's going to ask you, well, do you love everyone you work with? Do you love the neighbor down the street. Do you love your in-laws, family members, extended family? Now we're starting to squirm in our seats a little bit, aren't we? Love is an essential element for Christian growth. I've known Christians who could go no further in their growth because they were holding on to a list of grievances in their life that people had inflicted against them. Warren Wearsby talks about this. He said, One of the most miserable men I ever met was a professed Christian who actually kept in a notebook a list of the wrongs he felt others had committed against him. I'm sure you've never physically written it down. I hope not. But I bet you have a list in your mind. We're going to go through a mental exercise. You ready? You're going to visualize that list. You're going to crumble it up, and you're going to throw it into the fire. Love wipes the record clean. It never holds things against people. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. One commentator has said this of this verse, when love has no evidence, it believes the best. When the evidence is averse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. We need love. And Paul prays for more of it because it is that virtue that we cannot produce within ourselves. It will only be produced in us as we grow in this faith and more reliant upon the Spirit of God. Let's see a fourth thing that he prays for in verse 13. Holiness without holes. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of the saints. Now, some of you are aware that I am majorly flawed and potentially unfit to be a pastor in New England why? Because I just don't really care about sports. <laughs> I am so sorry to announce that publicly. <laughs> I want to care. I want to go to the sports parties while you guys are sportsing and and get all thrilled and enthusiastic while things are happening, sports things. I want to be able to know players and ramble off facts about them. I want to watch football other than just the Super Bowl. Even at that, I'm like 50% successful. I make some of them. I don't make others. I would much rather watch a presidential debate, read a good book, listen to a sermon, go out fishing. I know, I'm flawed. Is it possible... That many of us look at personal holiness like I look at sports. It's fine for other people. You sort of respect it and you wish you could care, but it's not really your thing. It wasn't something you talked about growing up. Your church didn't emphasize it. It's not your passion. The pursuit of holiness feels like just another worry in the list of worries that we all deal with. So it would be great to be a better person and we'll avoid the really big sins, but you feel all set. There that that phrase is again, without it. Kevin DeYoung writes, the hole in our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. I worry that there is an enthusiasm gap and no one seems to mind. But God minds. First Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. J.C. Riley wrote, We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin, He does more. He breaks its power. Now, let's just be honest. Holiness is hard. I want you to throw away from your mind that notion that when you come to Jesus, life just gets so easy. It's false. It's a lie. But do keep in your mind that the Christian life is the best sort of life that you can possibly live. It is so robust and full and complete because it is brought forward by God and everything that is worth anything in this world comes to us through the hard road. It's easy to sign a petition protesting man's inhumanity much easier than refraining from hating the neighbor who goes off on you for no reason. It's one thing to say, I'm going to make a difference and change the world. It's a completely different thing to resolutely pray in your heart, God, Start with me. I see the wickedness in my own heart and the way that I'm willing to conform and cave to the standards of this world. Start here. We need a holiness without holes. We need to look more like Christ. Why is it important to be established in this Christian faith? Why do we need the gaps filled? Why do we need the direction without question? Why do we need love without limits? Why do we need holiness without holes? We'll look there at the verse 13, the tail end. Jesus is coming back. One day you and I will stand before our maker and he will open up the book of life. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we will give an account for how we lived, not just what we believed. And Paul is praying these things for you because, let me just say this, if you grab hold of faith, if you follow God's direction, if you make love a central feature of your life, if you're a holy individual, that day will be awesome when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that the scriptures say repeatedly is that we should long for that day. It should be our heart's cry. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, should be the prayer of your heart while you are waiting.